This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AstraZeneca's Your Cancer Program, which spotlights difference makers from across the oncology community who are working to redefine cancer care. Learn more at yourcancer.org. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Stiesel as a senior writer here at The Post. Today, we have two segments on mental health, cancer, and caregiving. Later, we'll hear from Jason Resendez, who is the president of the National Alliance for Caregiving. But first, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Dan Shapiro, who's an author, a psychologist, and director of the Curtis Center for Burnout Solutions. Dr. Dan Shapiro, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you. Dan, you bring such personal and professional perspective to this. I'd love it if you'd start by taking us back to that moment when you, I think as a college junior, learned you had blood cancer. Tell us about what happened, how you accepted that news. Um, so I, I was at a theater institute, junior year abroad, you know, uh, away from home and started having these odd symptoms that got more and more intense and took myself to one of those dock in the boxes. And a little head peeks out uh, after I was in for a, 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 just an X-ray. And um, she says, Dan, uh, have you ever had an x-ray before? And uh, I couldn't remember. I didn't think so. Maybe I wasn't sure, but right away knew that something was uh, significantly different in my life. And uh, over the next weeks, discovered that this large mass in my chest was indeed uh, lymphatic cancer called Hodgkin's disease. Wow. And so how did that affect you and, and also the people around you, the people who you had to look upon to look after you? Um, you know, at first, we had no idea what it meant. Um, I remember one of my early thoughts was, oh, this means I'm automatically gonna lose my hair and likely die. Um, I was pretty uneducated. Um, you know, of course, the word cancer uh, is associated with, you know, hundreds of actual diseases, and they have uh, widely varying prognostic uh, implications and treatments associated with them. So. Um, I, I knew very little at the beginning, and uh, my parents also knew very little, and my mother's advice was, we're going to take this, you know, one step at a time, which turned out to be uh, real wisdom. Over the next, you know, five years, um, I had a number of relapses, so, you know, my psychological response to, to each of those was quite different. And of course, we're talking about an era when you couldn't turn straight away to Google to find all the answers as people do now. Um, what was it like talking to your peers? And also, you mentioned your mother, you were 20 at an age when a lot of people are breaking away from their parents and trying to make decisions themselves. This threw you back into your family circle. Yeah, I wish you'd been there at the beginning so you could have just said what you just said. So it would have been very <laughs> oh, helpful. Um, I remember having all sorts of issues, particularly with my mother, who was a pretty um, very strong-willed, also could be a little anxious uh, person, and as an adolescent, tr uh, you know, trying to escape from her, um, you know, this did cast us back, I think, a few years. Um, I remember yelling at her for opening a chip bag for me. She, you know, she's just trying to be helpful, and uh, I was, you know, really resistant to that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it tosses a whole family, and, you know, I was lucky to have a family that was supportive uh, and wanted to be engaged and and cared deeply and yet um 
you know, it tossed us all. And, you know, one of the most difficult moments I remember early on, I'm sitting across from a physician. At this point, I'm pretty organized. I knew I had to approach this much more like an audit than like just, you know, a fun conversation with a friend. So I'm meeting with a radiation oncologist. I had all my questions written out, incredibly uh, organized, um, methodically moving through each one of them with military precision. And my father was sitting next to me. And all of a sudden, I heard him gasp this sort of a silver whale, and he doubled over onto his knees, and I saw one teardrop land on his shoes. And it just, you know, it kind of froze me, and it sort of froze the radiation oncologist too. But recognizing from a pretty early part of the experience that I wasn't only going to be managing my own emotion, uh, we were all going to be kind of managing each other's in an enmeshed sort of post-immigrant family uh, that was pretty intense. Dan, already in this very short conversation, we've laughed. You've talked about that tear, which is tear jerking. Tell me about managing those emotions and understanding how to help use them in a in a, a productive way to help you get over the disease. So, so one of the first things I'd say to my my brothers and sisters out there who are going through this, whether you're a, a family member or the person going through it, is that there is this sort of pervasive and I'd say insidious set of beliefs in the culture that you've got to slap on a happy face. If you're not always thinking positively, then maybe there's something wrong with you. And um, that's an enormous amount of pressure. I, I feel like we already have this heaping plate of difficulty. Uh, trying to pretend that it isn't what it really is uh, doesn't do anybody any good. Now, that said, if you're someone who tends to sink into deep depressions and not be able to get out of it, you've got to do something. Be that get around other people, seek support from other uh, survivors, use distraction, try to exercise as much as you possibly can, you know, all those coping things. But this idea that we have to slap on a happy face, I think, is pervasive in the society and destructive. You talked about advocacy and how important it was for you to become an advocate for yourself. Tell us about that process and how it worked. So I... I initially thought, you know, across the street from us when I was growing up, Vic, uh, this Czech, you know, the father in this Czechoslovakian family had people bringing TVs to his house, you know, the big square boxes, and he would fix them. And a few days later, people would come up, he'd pull open the garage, they'd get their television, they'd put it on the back of the car and they'd drive away. And that's what I thought this was going to be like. You bring your body to the physicians and the nurses and they, you know, do some magical treatment and you take your body back and you're done. Well, that is not at all what the experience uh, is really like. Um, we must advocate for ourselves. So that means describing our symptoms and side effects of the medications well, uh, trying to partner uh, when we aren't being listened to. Uh, that means escalating and being sometimes even aggressive and making uh, sure we're heard. I'm not saying that every patient you know, needs to be uh, overly aggressive with every health professional they encounter. But we also can't just accept it if uh, our symptoms or side effects or other issues or, or, you know, our questions are being ignored. You've talked about this process, the relapses you've referred to as cancer's boot camp. What do you wish now, you, sorry, you, you wish you'd know then that you know now about how to get through this boot camp and how to approach it? So, you know, I think one part is getting through what you have to do today. It's really easy and it is seductive to start thinking about the big picture all the time. 
And, you know, you can't do the whole thing at once. When I was in the bone marrow transplant unit, I had a, a friend, a, a, a lifer I had met uh, while I was in college volunteering uh, at a prison near Vassar College where I went to school. And I, I noticed when I was in the prison that a lot of the inmates wore watches, which I thought was really weird. Like, what, why? Like, if I was going to do this really long bid, I don't think I'd want to I'd want to watch. And he said, no, you got it all wrong. Um, and his name is Ernest, uh, Ernest Morton. He's out. Really amazing guy. Um, he said, you, you've got to focus on the next little bit of time. And if you if that means getting through the next day, that's great. If that's too long for you, get through the next couple hours. If that's too long, just get through the next hour. And you focus on each little bit of time at a time. And, you know, for the relapses, particularly the early physically difficult parts and psychologically difficult parts, just focusing on how to get through this next little bit of time made a huge difference to me, um, particularly the stem cell transplant, which is it's you're isolated, you're physically deeply uncomfortable. And, you know, I call that cancer's boot camp. You came out and you became a psychologist. How did your personal experience inform that decision to become a psychologist? And how does it inform your work as a psychologist? So at the time, I was trying to decide if I should be a writer or an actor or um, pursue psychology. And I realized uh, that I wanted to have a more direct impact uh, on people. And I you know, was fortunate enough to have great mentors, uh, academic mentors, and, and yeah, as you say, became a psychologist along the way, while also dealing with chemotherapy during graduate school a, a, a couple of times. Um, I think it's had a profound impact on me. Now I work for the Chartist Center for Burnout Solutions because I, I began to notice, in addition to being a patient, that some of the physicians and nurses I was around frequently um, had their own struggles. Um, and later in my career, um, after treating a lot of medical patients, including cancer patients, a physician who had referred me patients uh, came to see me himself. And that's where I, when I really started to get a window into the other side of caregiving. For many people, cancer has become a chronic illness instead of an acute disease or some combination of those things. That's changed the language we use around cancer very often. We have to think about living with cancer. How has it changed your approach to the, the big C? I mean, it's a, it's a very different disease for very different people. Uh, I, I think the, embedded in your question is a, a, a terrific realization for all of us. And that is to recognize the sheer diversity in patient experience based on circumstance, right? I, I knew um, patients with metastatic breast cancer who lived you know, 12, 15 years, um, and despite it being metastatic, while others had a much uh, quicker demise under the same circumstances. So knowing at the outset as a patient, you don't know which path you're on and trying to live as fully as you can, um, you, you know, with with the days you have and the and the circumstances you have available, I think is a you know one emphasis. Um, and, and the other piece is you know reaching out to others and recognizing um, how important that is, and simultaneously that their course may not apply to you. Finally, I'd say the internet is a three car garage filled with ferret <laughs> droppings. And if you if you try to simulate an oncologist education with 15 minutes uh, on on Google or Wikipedia, you're only going to drive yourself nuts. And yet it can help with advocacy, right? I mean, yeah, it's a double edged sword. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Dan, I'm not the only one who gets to ask you questions. I have a question here from Cynthia Nagel, one of many people who've written in. I'd like to read it to you. Cynthia asks, what advice would you give to someone and to their family members who had just been diagnosed with cancer and is about to start chemo treatments? Uh, great question. So first, be organized. And I know chemotherapy, it's this really oppressive word. It's scary. But, um, you know, I did chemo in three different circumstances with and treatment for Hodgkin's disease is pretty aggressive. The chemos are tough. Um, and I did some really tough drugs. And sometimes some of the tougher drugs that people thought were going to be terrible, I really breezed through. So just because you're going in for chemotherapy doesn't mean it's going to be this absolutely horrible experience. Um, frequently, what I felt like was kind of getting the flu a little bit. One piece of advice is to be really organized about the side effects. Because these drugs are complicated, right? If you go to read all the side effects that can come from having like adriamycin, bleomycin, cytoxin, one of these, it's, you know, it's like a tome. So right. you don't know which set you're going to have. So record that. When did you have it? What happened exactly? So that you can partner well with the health professionals who might be able to alleviate some of those symptoms. You know, you might not get nauseous. Maybe you get something else. I mean, I had itching, rashes, uh, all, all sorts of odd symptoms and being able to trace it back. Okay, that's the chemotherapy. This is what we can do to help you feel more comfortable with that makes a big difference. The other thing I'd say is bring distractions for during the chemotherapy. Um, when my wife was ill, that was the only time I let her watch the show Six Feet Under, which is a tremendous <laughs> show that came out. And so we would actually, in an odd way, we looked forward to it. We had time together. We got to watch this show. Um, so, you know, to try to you know make it a, a, an experience that isn't to be dreaded. So I really wanted to push a little bit harder and ask more about that, because in some ways, what you describe is cancer becoming a full time job, right? I mean, there's so much to learn. There's so much information out there. It's available to so many of us and we have to learn in order to advocate for ourselves. But those distractions are massively important, right? For your wife, it was six feet under. But how should people learn to distract themselves and enjoy other parts of life? Is that doable? Oh, it is 100% doable. And um, even when I thought I was dying, and after a couple relapses and some pretty aggressive treatment, I got really, really sick. And one of the things I had to remind myself of, you know, frequently, and it, it didn't always go this well, was that I could still enjoy um, the music I liked, you know, James Taylor's, you know, amazing voice or um, petting our cats or, you know, getting out for a really short walk outside and what the air outside felt like on my face um, and being willing to, you know, focus on these little moments um, was terrific. Now, there's still going to be down times, but just because you're going through cancer doesn't mean that your entire life is ablated. Talk to us about the importance of community support, because there's you, there's your family, and then there are people beyond that, some of whom obviously are friends and you're close to, but there's a broader community out there with advice and knowledge to be reached out to. How can that be organized these days? So there are massive communities. And now, you know, obviously with, with the benefit uh, of the internet, you can find people who have the exact um, cancers you have probably, you know, in most cases, that's not true of everyone, but in a lot of cases, there's a lot of support out there. Now it's complicated, right? Because 
you know, out in the world, I remember early on, I was newly diagnosed and met someone who'd had a bunch of relapses and was in the active throes of dying um, right away. And that was scary. Um, and sometimes that prevents us from reaching out. I would encourage people to reach out despite having those kinds of experiences, right? I used to joke, oh yeah, my uncle Lenny had Hodgkin's disease. He died in like two minutes. It was like drive-through, you know? Um, and yeah, I had that experience where people would say things like that to me early. But um, I tried not to let that prevent me from still reaching out because there's a lot of wisdom out there. There was a young guy, I, I knew him from camp, uh, Andrew Wanzelak, who, who knew a tremendous amount more than I did about chemotherapy, and he was really helpful. So what are some of the common misperceptions that people have about cancer that you feel a need to correct? Well, obviously the first one we've already mentioned, which is that cancer is a lot more than just one illness. Yeah. Two, there are still some people who think that it's, you, you know, you're diagnosed and then three days later you die automatically. You know, and obviously that's not the case anymore um, and hasn't been the case for a really long time. Um, the, the third, I'd say, is that just because someone looks okay and looks normal doesn't mean they don't have it. You know, there, there are um, some illnesses that are quite severe that don't take your hair, um, don't make you look puny, but that doesn't mean they're not still really sick. And, and finally, there's, there's a lot of odd experiences along the way. Um, I remember being bald and big puffy prednisone cheeks at a supermarket, just, you know, running, just getting things rung up by a cashier who started talking to me really loud as if, you know, in addition to cancer, I might be deaf or something. You know, they're, you're going to run into some odd characters. And sometimes the people that have been in your life and really close to you, for example, might disappear. While people that have been really just superficial acquaintances may rise up and become more important in your life. So there are these sorts of surprises sometimes uh, along the way too. Dan, I want to talk to you before we finish about the Chartist Center and the work you're doing with burnout among medical professionals. How much of that are you seeing and, and how much harder has it become, I, I make an assumption it is harder, after the, during and after the pandemic? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, th thank you for asking that. Um, we have what I think is a pretty unique approach to measuring and addressing uh, burnout by looking really in a much more holistic way, having been a patient, knowing that, you know, eating, sleeping, drinking, and getting a chance to pee when you're a health professional is important, physical safety, emotional safety, uh, mental health. Um, we have found pretty high rates of full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder among those who were really on the front lines uh, during the COVID pandemic, um, as well as just wanting to feel respected. So um, I have enjoyed getting a chance to help a large population that helped me. I feel deeply indebted to nurses uh, in particular, but also physicians, all the way through to people who cleaned our rooms and transported me. I mean, I remember a transporter with this beautiful baritone voice singing uh, as he wheeled me out of the hospital after a five-day stay. So we're trying to address you know, burnout across the, the full spectrum of, of uh, healthcare workers. Dan, I'm going to think about that baritone voice, and I want to thank you so much for joining us today for a very important conversation about caregiving. Thank you. Really delighted to have the time with you. Thanks. And to our viewers, please stay with us. I'll be back very soon with another section on mental health, cancer, and caregiving.
Dr. Gigi Ilbayumi from Georgetown University School of Medicine. I'm the founding director of the Rodham Institute, which is dedicated to improving health equity in DC through education. You know, 20 years I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I, as a physician who talks to women all the time and people all the time about getting screened for cancer, had missed two mammograms because I was going through a divorce. I was extremely lucky because I had great care, but also being a physician, I had the privilege of being able to navigate the system very, very quickly. And between my discovering the lump and ending up in surgery, having my surgery was less than a week. The second time I had had cancer was during COVID, if you can believe it. I was taking care of COVID patients in the hospital and then started having symptoms. And I was again lucky um, in that I got chemo and you know got my kidney removed and I'm fine, thank goodness. It's been three years now. Um, when we talk about disparities, this should be the gold standard. How I got treated should be the gold standard, not waiting months and months because unfortunately, DC is the number one per capita leader in the country on cancer deaths. So um, I want to bring our guest, Mr. David Moffitt, because he's got his cancer story to tell. David? Thank you, Dr. Gigi, and thank you for telling your story, sharing your story. It's really a true inspiration. It was heartfelt. Good afternoon. My name is David Moffitt, and I'm a prostate cancer survivor. Um, I was diagnosed in 2019. Um, it, it was a shock. Um, I was pretty healthy, uh, 51 years old, and it totally blew me away. Um, my dad had prostate cancer. My stepfather had prostate cancer. Um, my grandfather had prostate cancer, and none of them talked to me about it. So um, I was in a, a really tough space. And that's not that uncommon um, for people not to know their family histories. You know, when I was growing up, my grandmother would say the word that shall not be mentioned. It's almost like if you say it, you will will it into existence, which is not uncommon. How can we and people in the audience do better in terms of knowing our family history? It's a real conversation that we need to have. Um, as, as hard as it is to have, we need to have it. We we discuss other things, get your education. We talk about finances, um, but talking about our health, our mental health is important. A lot of times in our community, those conversations are not had. They have they had behind closed doors, so we don't get those tools in our toolbox to have those conversations and to have that awareness. So that is a very focal point that we need to to learn about having those tough conversations. You know, I'm so glad that you brought up mental health because um, that is something that especially, you know, the COVID pandemic has impacted so many people. And sometimes, uh, you know, doctors, we can be pretty judgmental. Oh, you didn't follow up on your mammogram. You didn't get your colon cancer screening, et cetera. But when you're not in that space, in that headspace where you feel like, okay, um, I need to take care of my health because you've got either competing priorities, right? Uh, other things, your job, kids, any number of, of things or things like transportation or you're trying to decide whether to eat or pay that 
copay or or whatever the barriers are, you can't even think about screening. And so um, some of our work is really related to making sure that people have that mental health space. You know, in your work, um, what are some of the things that you're doing to help men specifically get to that space? I think for me, what's worked for, you know, my support groups and what I'm doing is create trust. And um, really at the outset, I should show my vulnerabilities, which I feel like is my greatest strength that I've learned in this process. And just authentically telling my story. Um, I believe if men feel like you're BSing them, they'll j they won't take it for real. And I feel like if you just, you're vulnerable enough and they see that you're being vulnerable enough, they're like, wow, I, I, maybe I can sit through this. I can share this. And I think it's, I believe it becomes infectious. It just shows us a different way that men should navigate than what we're shown as little boys to be these tough guys, superhero figures. And don't be afraid to switch doctors. You were sharing about your doctor and the initial person that you saw. What happened there? Yes, I had a physician, my first oncologist, I mean, urologist, and he just didn't have good bedside manner. Um, he was very highly educated. The way he talked to me was very percentages. And I want to say, Doc, I just want to know my story, how it, how it, how it impacts me. And um, he was, he just, it wasn't a good fit. And I became very angry. And talking about the mental health aspect, I'm a vet, combat veteran, and I also have PTSD. So that mix wasn't good. And mm -hmm. so I almost walked out. And um, just to be honest in this conversation, you know, God was like, stop. Mm -hmm. And I had to listen and he referred me to another urologist, which became a godsend. It was the physician that allowed me to get the quality care that I needed. So I just want to talk about that because we go shopping for clothes, shopping for cars, and we don't think anything about switching. If you're not happy with the clinician that you're seeing, get somebody else. This is your life. And when we look at people and poor outcomes, that trust factor with the clinician that is seeing you is key. And so if you're not feeling that the person is trustworthy or that you're not being treated with respect, find somebody that can take care of you because this is, you know, this is your life. And um, I, I just, I can't say enough about that. Anything that you wanted to share about clinical trials as we wrap up? Yes, um, I knew nothing about clinical trials or genetic testing before I was diagnosed with cancer. And I think we need to have those conversations as well to educate our families and our communities. So that can be definitely a conversation. It's important to have. So to wrap up, um, if your friend is having a hard time, remind them to get their screenings, genetic testing, be vulnerable, don't be afraid to switch doctors uh, and think about clinical trials. Thank you so much, Mr. David. And back to you, Washington Post. Thank you.
Welcome back. And for those of you just joining us, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. For the second part of our conversation, I'm going to be talking with Jason Resendez. He is the president of the National Alliance for Caregiving. Jason Resendez, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks, Francis. I'm excited to be here. Well, Jason, I watched that video coming in and gosh, I felt as if it spoke to so many of us who are thrust into these positions of caregiving without really understanding the role or what we've got ourselves into. How do you define or how do you think about caregiving? Who are caregivers these days? Yeah, these days caregiving is something that connects so many of us. There are 53 million Americans uh, providing unpaid care in this country. Over 4 million are providing care for someone living with cancer. Uh, a caregiver is someone who's uh, providing moral support, providing uh, support in terms of managing uh, disease, in terms of reporting and engaging uh, with providers. So they're highly engaged, particularly cancer caregivers, highly engaged in helping to address the healthcare needs of their care partners, their loved ones, uh, and even beyond that, friends and neighbors, I mean, caregiving connects all of us and we'll all play that role at some point in our lives. But Jason, I'm just stunned by that number you gave, 53 million Americans. Are there, is there greater representation in some communities than others? What are those, what's the demographic breakdown here in terms of caregiving? Yeah, absolutely. So according to research from the National Alliance for Caregiving and our partners at AARP, like I said, there's 53 million Americans, that's 10 million more than there were in 2015. And when we think about the average caregiver, the average caregiver is a woman, more than half of unpaid family caregivers are women. Uh, they're in their late 40s. When we think about the demographic breakdown, the majority are uh, white women, uh, but we see larger and larger percentages of African-American, Latino and Asian-American Pacific Islanders taking on the role of unpaid family care. Uh, and while caregiving impacts everybody, it doesn't impact everybody equally. So there are deep inequities associated with caregiving. Uh, so the less money you make, for example, the harsher the economic impacts of caregiving are, the harsher the emotional and mental health impacts of caregiving are. Uh, and these are inequities that we see echoed across all conditions, but particularly in complex conditions like cancer. You just indicated that this is a growing number of people. What's driving that growth? Absolutely, there are a number of factors contributing to the growth in unpaid family caregiving. One is the aging of the American population, sort of more folks uh, in need of care. Uh, we also see greater recognition of the role of the family caregiver, uh, more folks self-identifying as care, seeing the work that they're doing and supporting a loved one, supporting a neighbor, supporting uh, a family member, uh, in addressing an illness or as they age, more people seeing that role as the role of caregiving. Uh, so it's a, a number of contributing factors that are increasing that population of unpaid family caregivers. But what's not keeping up with that growth are supports uh, for those family caregivers. We're seeing more folks take on that role, but we're not seeing an adequate amount of investment in support of those individuals providing caregiving in this country. So Jason, I'm curious about what this says in your view about the healthcare system. Why are we seeing so much work of, of caregiving being done at home rather than by professionals? Is this appropriate or have we lost the right balance there in your view? 
Yeah, it's really a mix of factors, right? Part of it is just the amazing pace of medical innovation that we're seeing, uh, where folks are living longer, we're able to address uh, conditions like cancer more in an outpatient setting than an inpatient setting. Uh, so those are really positive developments. At the same time, we're not seeing uh, that adequate infrastructure to look at how do we adequately support uh, and ensure that that medical innovation uh, is you know, really helping to improve quality of life for everyone impacted by disease or impacted by uh, aging across a lifespan. Uh, so I think that's a really critical issue that we're seeing. And then also we have seen folks are, have a preference for living in the home as they age longer. So that means that more folks are providing care in the home, in communities. Um, uh, and so more family caregivers are engaged in that work. At the same time, we don't see adequate supports at the community level within the health system. When we talk about the amazing story of Dan and his family, uh, we, caregivers are a, a really core pillar of the healthcare workforce. Uh, and we're only now starting to see infrastructure and policy uh, catching up with that reality and supporting uh, individuals and in providing that care. Uh, and not just in cancer, but in other areas as well. So tell me a little bit about the shortage of professional fact um, caregivers and whether this has been exacerbated by the pandemic. What's the situation if you are fortunate enough or need, on the other hand, to turn to professionals? Yeah, absolutely. There's a tremendous shortage of direct care workers in this country that are one associated with the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic stretched everyone incredibly thin, the healthcare workforce, the unpaid family caregiver workforce, and certainly the direct care workforce. Uh, so the pandemic certainly played a role in that, but contributing to uh, the care crisis and the direct care crisis are low wages, sort of wages not keeping up with the incredible importance and value of the work of caregiving. Uh, so we see issues related to the pandemic, but we also see economic issues uh, that are suppressing uh, that workforce. Uh, so there's, I think, an incredible opportunity to invest in the direct care workforce to make the work of caregiving easier, right? We're never going to cure caregiving, uh, like we're striving to cure cancer. Caregiving will always be with us, but what can we do to make caregiving more sustainable, more dignified, and more equitable, and ensuring that direct care workers are part of the equation are, is incredibly important. Talk to me a little bit about the policies that, that you would like to see enacted that could help with this crunch. We've obviously got an increased awareness of the need of caregiving, but what's the next step, and is that in process? Yeah, this is an incredible moment for unpaid family caregivers and caregiving more broadly, as you mentioned, Francis, that visibility has never been higher from visibility in popular culture uh, with amazing TV shows uh, like This Is Us portraying caregiving uh, in different circumstances uh, to the uh, leadership at the highest level of government and recognizing caregiving, not just as a family issue, but as an economic security issue. But at the same time, it's really critical that we turn that visibility into policy action. Uh, we're starting to see that for the first time ever. We have a national strategy to support family caregivers. This is a bipartisan strategy that was released late in 2022 that outlines 350 federal actions and 150 community and private sector actions that we can take to better support family caregivers and address the myriad of challenges that caregivers face from uh, economic insecurity, uh, to uh, poor access to services, to low levels of awareness. This national strategy outlines 
uh, a number of actions and solutions, including policy solutions to improve the lives of family caregivers, but it's really about the political will to put that strategy into action and to also look at uh, a number of uh, areas that can support the work of caregiving and value the work of caregiving. One of those policy issues is paid family and medical leave. When we talk about the impacts of caregiving, it has healthcare impact, but it certainly has economic impacts. And over 60% of family caregivers are providing care while working. This is particularly true when it comes to cancer care. And we're one of the only nations without a paid family and medical leave policy to enable people to continue to provide that care while putting food on the table and earning a paycheck. So those are the kinds of policies that we need in order to value the work of caregiving. And a little bit more on the economics of this. What's available right now in terms of financial support for, for caregivers? Yeah, that's been one of the uh, silver linings, few silver linings of the pandemic is we saw an amazing amount of innovation take place at the state level uh, to increase support to unpaid family caregivers. Part of this was in relation to the issue of direct care workers. So you saw a lot of states uh, try to address their uh, and respond to the gaps in the workforce for direct care workers by providing financial support to unpaid family caregivers to provide that work. So uh, in lots of states, there's opportunities like Maine, for example, to receive uh, direct cash grants in support of unpaid family caregivers. At the same time, now that the public health emergency has ended, we see a lot of states uh, clawing back uh, that direct assistance to family caregivers. In fact, of the around 38 states that introduced that direct financial assistance, only 20 states are gonna continue uh, to provide uh, that level of assistance now that the public health emergency has ended. So there certainly is a tremendous need to continue that direct financial support in support of unpaid family caregivers. So we're really at a sort of pivotal moment here. Jason, tell me particularly about the challenges for caregivers of patients with cancer. Absolutely. So we see that cancer is an incredibly uh, complex uh, disease. And as Dan pointed out, you know, no one cancer is the same. Uh, and we see that when it comes to the data on unpaid family caregivers of individuals living with cancer. At the same time, we see some trends in the data. Um, overwhelmingly, people providing care uh, for a cancer patient, someone living with cancer, uh, is a woman. And they're often in high-intensity care situations. That means that they're providing uh, a high number of hours of care a week, assisting with many activities of daily living, from assisting with changing, uh, moving folks from one place to another, to over 70% providing assistance with complex medical tasks. Uh, that means providing assistance with things like changing catheters or colonoscopy care, um, you name it. These are complex tasks uh, that have traditionally been provided in an inpatient setting, uh, but because more and more cancer care is happening in an outpatient setting, that responsibility is falling on the shoulders of an unpaid family caregiver. Uh, and that is, care is provided without any training. There's very limited training provided um, in a consistent way to these individuals providing this complex care. So that leads to consequences uh, with over half of cancer caregivers reporting high emotional distress. I think Dan's story of his father um, and that teardrop beautifully and powerfully underscores the emotional toll that caregiving takes uh, in the cancer journey. Uh, and that 
research has shown that that spills over into the health and well-being of the actual cancer patient. So there's a tremendous need to better understand the unique journey that cancer caregivers are on and to support that journey with tailored policy solutions and, and supports within the health system. You know, it's hard to come up with one singular piece of advice, but if you have one to give to a caregiver who's looking after somebody with cancer, what would it be about balancing their own needs with the needs of the person they're looking after? Absolutely. I, I want to echo Dan's advice and to, uh, to seek out community, right? As I mentioned, there are 53 million Americans providing care, 4 million providing unpaid care for someone living with cancer. There's tremendous uh, value uh, in building a community around that care, learning from others who have provided this kind of care. There are tremendous uh, resources out there, you know, not adequate, but certainly they exist through organizations like the American Cancer Society, Cancer Support Community, that offer support groups for caregivers. So seeking out that community, building that community, and knowing that you're not alone, I think is a critical step in better addressing, you know, your self-care uh, and better understanding the journey that you're on with your care partner. Such an important word, self-care. I want to follow up with a question from a viewer. We've had a number that have come in and it follows just what we were talking about now. It comes from Aaron Corral. He is in Arizona and Aaron Corral writes, what is one piece of advice to give someone who wants to offer support for a caregiver experiencing burnout due to ongoing care for a parent with stage four cancer, but doesn't know how? It's a very specific question, but it also it is a very general question in another way too. Maybe you can... Give us a little insight how you would address that. Yeah, I think it, it starts with don't being don't be afraid to reach out and to engage in that conversation. I think we see that when someone's dealing with a friend or uh, a neighbor, a loved one dealing with a serious illness, you know, oftentimes that leads to isolation of that individual and that caregiver because people don't know what to say, how to engage. But I think the first step is just being open, honest, and asking about how you can support their journey. And that might, you know, result in a conversation uh, that could lead to specific actions, you know, picking up groceries, uh, helping someone uh, with uh, a travel, for example. Uh, but you won't know what that support is until you ask and actually engage in that conversation. So don't be afraid, sort of lean in um, to that desire to provide support and start that conversation. And it can be hard, right, to know how to begin those conversations. Are there websites or guides or books that help you uh, know how to make that first step, how to broach the, the, the topic? Yeah, absolutely. I'd encourage folks uh, to check out the American Cancer Society, Cancer Support Community, uh, tremendous resources uh, are provided there. Also, if you go to caregiving.org, we have a number of guidebooks to help facilitate these kinds of conversations at the National Alliance for Caregiving. So Jason, you talked about some of the issues coming up and the changes that came with the pandemic in terms of caregiving funding. What are the most promising legislative efforts you're seeing at the state or federal level? If you could dream looking ahead. Yeah, I think what's exciting is states continue to drive innovation and continue to fill in gaps uh, where we haven't gotten there at the federal level. That's certainly the case when it comes to paid family and medical leave, uh, with five states passing paid family and medical leave laws within the last year and a half alone. Uh, we're also seeing at the administrative level uh, continued recognition that unpaid family caregiving, just because it's unpaid, doesn't 
mean that it's not tremendously valuable. So recently, uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services issued a proposal that would, for the first time, uh, enhance reimbursement to healthcare providers to train family caregivers. And this is a tremendous step in the right direction. Mm. Goal two of our national strategy is around better integrating caregivers into care teams. Uh, and when we think about cancer care, for example, and the complexities that are often associated with cancer care, that those complexities uh, are you know, being under addressed because there's a lack of training provided to family caregivers. Uh, so if this rule is adopted, uh, then we'll have new ways to incentivize healthcare providers to provide training uh, to cancer uh, caregivers, to provide training for caregivers of individuals, uh, helping and assisting uh, with serious illnesses that require specialized training. Uh, so there's legislative action underway at the state level, a continued conversation at the national level around paid family medical leave and adequately funding home and community-based supports. We're also seeing some great progress administratively, but it's not enough. It's a, a step in the right direction, but this is a tremendous, tremendous road ahead when it comes to adequately supporting these 53 million Americans providing unpaid care. Jason, do you see models overseas that could be informative and other countries using approaches that could be adapt adapted here to this country? That's a great question. There's a great uh, innovation happening overseas, particularly in places like Japan and the Netherlands that really touch uh, on different aspects of caregiving. Uh, when you look at the Netherlands and we think about dementia care, sort of the village model and helping folks uh, live within community while living with dementia uh, is a great example. In Japan, we see a lot of community recognition around supporting individuals as they age from the financial services sector to the healthcare sector. Um, in so many uh, other countries, we see national paid family and medical leave policies. So there's a, a menu out there uh, for us to look at and to adopt. Uh, in terms of better supporting unpaid family caregivers. And in some ways, we're doing the same thing, right? Well, I have had great conversations with our friends in Canada about the importance of a national strategy to support family caregivers. So there's a lot of opportunity to learn um, from global leadership uh, when it comes to unpaid caregiving. Jason, as a last question, if you could undo one misperception people have about caregiving, here's your platform. What would you tell our viewers? Uh, that we'll all be caregivers at one point in our lives, uh, whether we're going to receive care, provide care, uh, caregiving is something that touches all of us. Uh, whether we recognize ourselves as a caregiver or not, we're uh, providing that role now or will be providing in the future or will benefit from that role. So it's something that we have to really uh, conceptualize and internalize if we wanna make the progress that we need to support family caregivers. Right. We'll all be caregivers at some point in our lives. What a powerful message. Jason Resendez, thank you so much for joining Washington Post Live. Thanks so much, Francis, for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.